welcome to Talk of Today, where we explore developments in science, technology, and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. I think this episode is on one of the most fascinating topics we've explored so far. Today, we are talking about information, a concept that we've only had for less than a century, but one that is proving to be absolutely foundational to our understanding of the universe and the ongoing process of life. My interest in information started about five years ago, when I was thinking about what a foundation for morality might be. Whenever we think about what might be a preferable state of affairs, we are fundamentally picturing realities with different configurations of matter. When making decisions of right and wrong, we are imagining worlds with matter organized in different ways. There's something about certain material configurations that makes us think that they have intrinsic moral worth, whether they are living systems with sentience or entire ecosystems. Configurations of matter, by definition, are information. Information is a quantity that is inextricably tied to entropy, the measure of how disordered a system is. In order to develop a fundamental understanding of right and wrong, one that extends beyond what our anthropocentric lenses may tell us, and encapsulates all of life, we must think about the physical makeup of these systems. There's no other way. As you'll learn in this episode, a deeper understanding of information will completely revolutionize how we see and interact with the world. Its impact is hard to overstate. Joining me to cover this topic is celebrated physicist and science communicator, Professor Paul Davies. Paul is a British scientist who has focused on theoretical physics, cosmology, and astrobiology. At Arizona State University in Phoenix, he established the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science, a cosmic think tank devoted to brainstorming deep foundational questions across all the sciences. He's got a deep interest in SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and chairs the SETI Post Detection Task Group. He's also been involved in developing fascinating new theories of cancer, which we cover in this episode. Paul has received numerous awards for his work, including the Templeton Prize, the Faraday Prize, and in 2007, he was named a member of the Order of Australia. Paul is also the author of 28 books. His most recent is The Demon in the Machine, an eye-opening exploration of information and our world, which was the basis of this conversation. In our talk, we cover what is information? What's the difference between computation and information processing? What is order? Emergence and reductionism? Cancer through the lens of information? And top-down causality? I had a wonderful time talking with Paul, so I hope you enjoy our conversation and take away from it as much as I did. And without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Professor Paul Davies. I like to tell people I was born a physicist, and I was born a long time ago, in the previous <laughs> millennium. I grew up in London in the austere post-war years, and I think a lot of my enthusiasm for science was childhood boredom. Uh, these were uh, years in Britain where uh, people didn't have cars uh, or televisions, who very rarely went away on holiday, uh, toys were expensive, uh, and yet, it was a wonderful life. We uh, made our own entertainment. Uh, there's a form of escapism, I think, involved with science. I found I only had to look up at the sky and there was a wonderland above my head uh, and I could get away from the humdrum everyday existence and, and find a delight in 
thinking about unseen things and unseen forces and uh, um, the, the, the universe. So my earliest childhood experiences were asking the really deep questions of existence, as I think most, most children do. Uh, they think about wh wh why am I here or why do I exist and uh, uh, how did it how did the world come to exist and what will happen to me when I die? All those sorts of things. Uh, most people grow out of it, but I never did. And so I'm still asking those fundamental questions and in now in a more orderly way, in a professional capacity. So I, I grew up in London. I went to university there, the University College London. I studied physics and mathematics. And then I went on to work in the field is uh, mainly called cosmology, which is the study of the universe on a large scale, its origin and evolution. Uh, but I became interested in the nature of life uh, pretty early on uh, in my career uh, because it, life seems so weird. And I've never been trained in biology. The last formal instruction in biology I had, I it was up to the age of 16, so that was a long while ago. Uh, but to a physicist, life looks like magic and so I've always been deeply fascinated by what it is that makes life tick uh, and given that living organisms are just made of ordinary atoms and molecules what is going on to bestow upon this collection such extraordinary properties and that's really the heart of this new book of mine and the heart of my lifelong request uh, li I'm sorry how's my lifelong quest uh, to try to uh, understand the nature of life. And when you were, uh, in, as a cosmologist, you were interested in uh, astrobiology and to understand how uh, life forms in, you know, places that are not Earth, how they may come to be, we need to understand what life is at a very um, fundamental level. Like what, if, how could we class a system as living, um, be it the smallest of molecules or you know, self-replicating self molecules all the way up to um, the complex societies that we see now. Um, and your book, uh, Demon in the Machine, um, it basically puts the, uh, makes the, among many other points that uh, the answer to this question is rooted in information. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, so, uh uh, yes, now, now you've touched on a number of topics there, and I might say, as we were reflecting a bit on my childhood, one of the things that I firmly believe, uh, believed as a child uh, was that we're not alone in the universe, that there is life uh, out there and uh, probably intelligent life. And I was passionate about what became known as SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. But in the 1960s and 70s, uh, it's... To profess an interest in looking for intelligent aliens was tantamount to professing an interest in looking for fairies. It was considered self-evidently absurd. Uh, the, all the scientists, distinguished scientists who had thought about these things were adamant that life is just a bizarre freak accident. It's just something that's happened in one corner of the universe. It's not a cosmic phenomenon at all. Uh, and it was a, a crackpot quest to be seeking life uh, beyond Earth. And that was very much the entrenched view uh, right into the late 1970s. And then, for some reason that I still find mysterious, the pendulum swung. And today, it's fashionable to say that the universe is teeming with life. Uh, but the truth is that the 
scientific understanding has hardly advanced at all. And you, you hit the nail on the head exactly with the question uh, about how likely is it that life will emerge, because if life pops up readily in Earth-like conditions, maybe other conditions, but if it's uh, Earth-like conditions, then the universe should indeed be teeming with it, because there's no, we know there's plenty of habitable real estate out there. We know there are billions of Earth-like planets just in our galaxy alone. But just because a planet is habitable doesn't mean it's actually inhabited, uh, because for a planet that could host life, as we know it, uh, life has to get going there somehow. And so the question about the transition from non-life to life, what it takes for a mishmash of chemicals to become a truly living thing, uh, that is the, the key. And if that is something that is built into the laws of, of the universe in some fundamental way, so that it's sort of almost inevitable, we can expect there to be life everywhere. But if it's a just a dream run of fluky chemical reactions, well, then maybe we are alone. And the, the truth is we don't know where on that spectrum, from bizarre fluke to inevitability, the truth lies. And so there's plenty of scope here for disagreement. But the theme of my book is not so much we haven't figured out what bits, what chemicals to mix with which other uh, and for how long. It's, it's that it's only half the story that the stuff of life, the molecules of which we're made and the way they're put together is really uh, only about what we might call the hardware of life, but it ignores the thing that really makes life magical, and that is the software. It's the information content, the information processing. And so I see the heart of the debate about the transition from non-life to life is uh, how was it possible for molecules stupid molecules blundering around to basically write computer code because uh, our, um, the, the, the secret of life really lies with digital information processing, well, and analog information processing. I think everybody knows that DNA is a sort of digital database. Uh, it's uh, the units are the so-called letters of the genetic alphabet, A, G, C, and T. Uh, so these are discrete bits of information stored in the DNA. Uh, so we often say that DNA is the rule book of, of life. It contains instructions for building the organism. Because life amounts to much, much more than that. I think everybody's familiar with that notion that at the heart of life is an information database, and that information has to be processed in some manner for anything to happen. So here we see, uh, at the most fundamental level, the existence of information and how that information processing system came to exist in the first place and how the genetic code, the coding assignments that translate the four-letter alphabet of DNA into the 20-letter alphabet of proteins, so made of 20 different types of amino acids, how that coding assignment uh, evolved uh, initially we absolutely don't know. So we're stuck really on the origin of the software. Um, that's not to say the origin of the hardware is an easy thing either, but we can sort of imagine that uh, a chemical pathway of some sort uh, might have led to nucleic acids or uh, amino acids, proteins, and so on. We can sort of think that getting the building blocks of life uh, may not be too hard. 
But how do you get that information processing? And how do we do that with, without introducing some new fundamental laws? And, and I think we do have to introduce some new fundamental laws. So maybe I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll come to that, but uh, it's a very exciting uh, proposition. Um, so I think we all have a, an understanding, an intuitive understanding of what information is. And we, you know, we, we use information, uh, the word, uh, in our daily language uh, all the time, but how would you define information uh, in this context, uh, among other contexts? Like, is there a unifying definition, perhaps? So this is uh, often the problem in science, that something is used informally in daily life, and then it's used in a rather precise way in science. And physicists like to be very precise about uh, what they are uh, about defining their terms, so uh, usually in terms of mathematics of some sort. And uh, the everyday use of the term information, which is very vague, um, nevertheless has at the heart, I think, uh, what most people recognize, which is if you have information about something, uh, you, you are less uncertain about that thing. And so, for example, just take a trivial one, if you want to get a ferry from... Uh, Balmain to Circular Quay here in Sydney, if you just show up at a random time, you're going to be faced with a rather long wait because you're uncertain as to when the ferry will come there every hour. Uh, but if you get the ferry timetable, that uncertainty can be reduced. Uh, it may still be a few minutes late or a few minutes early, uh, but uh, nevertheless, the uh, information in the timetable reduces your uncertainty. And that general notion was formalized in the 1940s by uh, a man called Claude Shannon. He founded what we would now call information theory as a precise discipline, a way of calculating information. And it was he who coined the term bits, uh, the binary digits or bits, which I think everyone's familiar with that these days. And uh, he uh, defined it in this very simple way. Uh, if you toss a coin, for example, it may come down either heads or tails. If you don't look, you're equally uncertain about which it is. But if you take a look, oh, it's heads, uh, that uncertainty is reduced to zero. And that represents one bit of information, one reduction in an uncertainty from 50-50 to a certainty. Uh, and building on that, uh, his primary interest uh, wasn't anything to do with life. It had to do with uh, the war effort, actually, at that time. Uh, supposing you're trying to communicate on a battlefield uh, across a, a crackly radio or maybe down a telephone line, a noisy telephone line. Uh, how do you encode and transmit information through that channel so as to minimize ambiguity, maximize the chance that the coded information will be uh, correctly interpreted at the other end. He worked all that out. And then it, it found immediate application in many areas of science. It now pervades most areas of science. So certainly it found information uh, theory uh, applied to biology. Uh, the, uh, we're just talking about how the information encoded in DNA is transferred to the, the, these little machines are called ribosomes. They make the protein. So they take that information and they uh, turn it into uh, structures, the proteins uh, that do the work in biology. Uh, so that's a, that's a communication channel from the DNA uh, to the proteins, a classic example. Uh, but 
retrospectively, also finds very deep applications in fundamental physics. Uh, and uh, this goes way back because uh, the idea that information makes a difference in the world, information can have physical clout, if you like, uh, that uh, was foreshadowed by the work of James Clark Maxwell in the middle of the 19th century. Let's just say a few words about Maxwell. He was a giant of theoretical physics. Uh, he was the one who unified the laws of electricity and magnetism. And so now we have this whole area of science and engineering called electromagnetism. And one example of this is uh, radio. Radio waves uh, were predicted uh, from that theory. Uh, light is an electromagnetic wave. And so Maxwell discovered that from his uh, mathematical unification of these uh, two forces. And so he was already very established in that field, but he had made seminal contributions to the theory of heat. It was known in the 19th century that, for example, a gas confined to a box or cylinder uh, would represented a whole lot of little particles rattling around chaotically. Uh, the temperature was the speed of those molecules. Uh, if you add heat, they move faster. Uh, and the laws of thermodynamics, as it was called, were worked out um, using that basic concept. And Maxwell had this uh, weird idea. Uh, one day, in a letter to a friend, he said, well, imagine if we had a, a box of gas with a screen down the middle, and the screen had a little hole in it, then uh, mostly the molecules on the left would stay on the left, and those on the right would stay on the right, but occasionally a molecule would go through that little hole. Uh, and uh, it would average out. So they go sometimes slow molecules, sometimes fast, sometimes left to right, sometimes right to left. But now imagine you had a little being who, who became known as Maxwell's demon who could follow the molecules and operate a shutter. So, for example, if fast molecules coming from the right might open the shutter, uh, if it was a slow molecule, keep it closed, and, and vice versa for the left. So eventually, the fast molecules will accumulate on the left side of the box, the slower ones on the right side, and that represents a temperature difference. And any engineer could hook up a device to run uh, an engine off that temperature difference and do useful work, like lifting a weight or something. So here we have this diminutive being who can use the information about molecular motion uh, as a source of work. So it's like information is a fuel that can uh, run engines. You can power a machine with information only. So those people think the information is sort of flabby, nebulous, higher order type of concept are wrong. It actually has real physical implications down on the ground of, of molecules. And so this Maxwell demon thing lay like an inconvenient truth at the heart of physics for decades and decades. And people thought, well, is this just uh, a bit of nonsense? Is it a paradox? Can we take it seriously? But a few years ago, people began building Maxwell demons. They can actually do this now using nanotechnology. This is technology on a molecular scale. And little nanomachines 
can be built to implement exactly, well, very closely, the concept of what Maxwell had in mind. And sure enough, information is a fuel. And you might think, well, this is an amazing breakthrough. But as usual, nature got there first, and life is full of little Maxwell demons, uh, little molecular machines playing the margins of the laws of thermodynamics to gain advantage. So parts, but only a small part, as it turns out, of the informational story of life uh, is something that involves fundamental physics going back uh, one and a half centuries. Um, these... So information is this, uh, you could say, physical quantity that is, you know, uh, pervasive throughout nature. But it obviously has a use, and uh, its use is realized in some sense uh, through computation. Now, I've heard computation discussed uh, in a number of different places, but I've, I've always been a little bit perplexed as to what it actually is. Like, how is there, like, how does something compute something, and what is the... Uh, like, how is it so uh, universal, and just how how does it work? It's, it's always been a bit confusing to me because, like, these little um, uh, you know molecules are engaged in computation. Our cells are engaged in computation. Everything, all of life is you know a big computation. Um, but I don't really understand well, what that is. Well, uh, and I think quite rightly you don't understand it because I think uh, nobody does. Uh, I, I should say that's a relief. <laughs> That, that you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the one way of thinking about the entire universe is it's like a gigantic computer because uh, at any given moment, uh, the, the material bodies of the universe, uh, whatever scale you want to put it on, um, are in a certain state, and later on they're in a different state, and so that's like input-output. Uh, and you could say, well, the universe is computing its own destiny or something like that. Uh, people write eloquently about this. But the big problem, I think, with this word computation is when is simple information processing, just churning bits around input-output, when is that actually something like a computation, which um, the word computation seems to imply uh, some sort of utility that's involved. Um, you compute something not... Uh, you, so, in other words, yeah, you, you, could, um, you could take uh, a, a collection of dice in a box with uh, at rest with numbers facing up and you could write down what that is and you could shake the, the box and then you could write down the uh, numbers that you see at the end of that process and then there's an input and an output. Has it computed anything? Well, uh, no, uh, it's just uh, turn one lot of information into another. Um, but that's uh, quite different if uh, uh, the, the output of the answer is a search for something, it might be a search algorithm uh, or we're trying to find an optimal path between two states or something, which is a computation. And some people have tried to get to grips with this. Uh, so David Walpert at the Santa Fe Institute for the Study of Complexity has written at least about the thermodynamic cost of computation as opposed to just general information processing. Um, and so some people are, are really uh, thinking about these uh, deep issues, but I would say we we don't yet have a very clear idea of when mere bit processing amounts to something more specific like a computation. So there is a, I don't, anyway. Yeah. So, so there is a distinction between uh, computation and information processing. 
I would say there is. I'd say when we're using the word computation, it does imply that there is uh, an additional goal or uh, the that the information that the pathway of information processing is constrained in some way. There's some external factor or criterion or value that we impose mm. uh, to dignify it with the term computation. I gave the example if you want to look for some optimal pathway, if you want to solve, I mean, there's a famous uh, one, of course, the traveling salesman problem. Uh, if you've got 10 cities and you want to visit each of them in turn and you want to minimize the amount of travel uh, between them, uh, how do you work that out? And a conventional computer will do it really by brute force. But uh, however it's done, you know, it's possible a quantum computer might find a shortcut. We don't know that yet. Uh, but uh, anyway, you can certainly say, well, here's the, the answer. Here's the output. This is the sequence of cities. And I would call that a computation because uh, it, it's not just saying, well, let's just uh, uh, start out with some particular route and then arbitrarily change the, the routing and then look at where we've got. It's, you're actually trying to achieve something. So I think there has to be some, something like an end goal or a purpose or a point in the information processing to make it a, yeah, a computation. That makes, that makes some sense uh, to me. What I gathered from your book is that uh, a lot of, well, life itself, but a lot of these molecules are kind of, when I say molecules, I mean, you know, these little um, molecular engines or these little ratchets, as, as you call them, um, they are kind of by, their, by design um, built with the capacity to process information. Um, and while there is like some goal, perhaps in that processing, you can one could imagine many other forms of molecules that do not exist within life, but by virtue of their composition, they end up processing information in, in some way. Um, so that's uh, yes, I think you know life is a good example. As I, I said earlier, that if you've got uh, information processing with some sort of goal or uh, global overall value uh, or some criterion why it's not just arbitrary processing bits. And life would seem to fit that definition. So the computer analogy with life runs very deep and I think it's very popular. People are familiar with the fact we were just earlier on talking about the genetic code. You know, life uses coded information which is transmitted and translated and implemented and it's a rule book for life, a code book for life. Uh, and, and that means that uh, it's a set of instructions and instructions have to have a purpose or a function or a meaning. Uh, and all of this uh, goes into the normal way we understand life. And, and what makes that baffling in physics is that we don't see meaning or purpose or anything like that in the laws of physics. We just see uh, molecules interacting and forces and uh, uh, concepts like energy and, uh, and entropy. Uh, these enter into physics. But when we flip to talking about life, life speak, biology, uh, we very much talk in terms of uh, goals and purposes and uh, uh, signals and uh, uh, even these days of course it's very familiar to talk about uh, gene editing so we think of genes as really like a text that can be edited now there's uh, technology available to rewrite the genes and so genes uh, life writes genes and it reads out genes and uh, we can now do this ourselves and so it's very much the language of information and uh, um, of, of, uh, 
some sort of text that is uh, editable. Yeah. Um, in this discussion of information and energy, but also complexity, the word order uh, always is used. And order is another one of these terms that I have an intuitive understanding of, though I don't quite know exactly what it is. You know, we'd be able to point to something that has order, but particularly in instances of, of life where um, there is so much going on, um, but there is, you know, like my, my state, my current state is being perpetuated across time and, and all that. So there is some order there, but this, this term order is something that I, I also struggle with at times. So how would you, how do you conceive of order? Um, at least in this, um, in, in, you know, in, in this discussion of life and information. Yes, you, you, they had to be very careful, uh, and there's a lot of confusion, and words like order and organization tend to be lumped together, and sometimes they can be, sometimes they're the opposites. So uh, when it comes to fundamental physics, we're in much better shape, as, as usual, the, the terms are defined very carefully. And uh, if we go right back to Maxwell's demon, thermodynamics, boxes of gas, and so on, uh, I'll give you a very simple example that will make this clear. Uh, imagine if we have a, a, a flask of oxygen and a flask of nitrogen, uh, and we put these together, then wait for a bit and the oxygen and the nitrogen will intermingle uh, until they're uniformly spread. And we know it's impossible to separate them out again, that this is an irreversible one-way process, uh, the mixing, uh, intermingling of the gases. Uh, but it's very clear that the uh, original state with the gases separated out is more ordered than the final state with them intermingled. And that's an example with uh, physicists define a term called entropy, which is a measure of the disorder. And they would say that the initial state is a low entropy state and the final state is a high entropy state. And the condition of thermodynamic equilibrium, when nothing further is going to happen, is the maximum entropy state. And all this was sort of worked out a long time ago. Uh, I also like the analogy with a pack of cards. If you go, I've never done this, by the way, but if, apparently if you go to a shop and buy a pack of cards and open them, they'll be neatly arranged in suit and numerical order. I assume that's true. It's a part of the folklore. Uh, and then uh, if you shuffle the cards, they'll, of course, be less ordered after the shuffling. And again, if you uh, go to uh, go to a magician and say, uh, give them this shuffle pack of cards and say, shuffle it back into uh, suit and numerical order, and they shuffle for a bit and give it back to you in that suit and numerical order, you'll know that there's a trick involved because you'll know that it would take a stupendous amount of time to actually uh, find the combination that would get you right back. And so there's another good example, a disordered, a shuffle pack of cards is disorderly. So you can apply this on a cosmic scale. You can say, well, uh, if the entire universe uh, is uh, sliding towards a state of thermodynamic equilibrium, I forgot the heat death of the universe, it must have started out more ordered. So the beginning of the universe must have been more ordered than it is now. And that is indeed true. It would take us a bit off topic for me to discuss that. But what we know about the very early universe, it was actually much simpler, uh, more uh, smooth than it is now when we look at, um, compare a galaxy, all the complexity of all the stars in their orbits and so on, with a, just a big splodge of gas, which is how it started out. Again, uh, you're seeing that the universe began in a more ordered state. It's now uh, in a less ordered state. And in the future, it'll be even 
even uh, less ordered than it is now. But uh, delving into the details of that is actually uh, very much at the forefront of uh, physics. It involves things like quantum black holes. You have to understand those, how they fit into the picture. And I'm not going to get into it here. Uh, but, but basically, there's a very clear story. But when it comes to life, then it gets very murky because uh, now Irvin Schrodinger, which in many ways he was the person who started this whole enterprise uh, in 1943, gave a series of lectures in Dublin in Ireland, which was neutral in the Second World War. So uh, Schrodinger was sheltering from the war. Uh, and he gave these lectures with the title, What is Life? And it became a very influential book. Uh, and he put his finger on it because he said that um, an, an, a non-living uh, system will tend to go from order to disorder, often called the second law of thermodynamics, but life uh, tends to create more order from order. So it's an orderly thing that makes more order. And so he saw one of the fundamental properties of life is its ability to turn order into order uh, and not uh, degenerate into disorder. And I think that's pretty obvious. You know, if you seal up a living organism in a, in a box, uh, it will die and decay into the degenerated state of disorder. Uh, and in order to keep it alive, you have to have a throughput of energy and entropy. It's got to be open to its environment. So some people have latched on to this uh, uh, creating order out of chaos uh, that they think life is somehow flying in the face of the laws of thermodynamics. It's going sort of backwards. Well, it's not um, because living systems are, are always open systems and any order that they create, any reduction in entropy is paid for by uh, the, uh, the chaos, if you like, that is exported into the wider environment. And the same thing with Maxwell's demon, if you get down to the level of individual molecular interactions, it looks like you're getting a free lunch. It looks like uh, by turning information into work, uh, you can have a perpetual motion machine. But when you look at the specific details, there's always a price to be paid. Uh, but life is very happy, of course, to go right up to that margin. Life uh, is in the business of um, processing information and uh, hugely, and it wants to do that at a very low thermodynamic cost. Uh, otherwise, it would cook itself to death um, because every time you raise information or reset an information register, you, you generate heat. And that's why laptops get so hot on the lap. <laughs> it's because they're uh, processing inf information with an entropy cost. And uh, life, uh, uh, the example I love to give uh, is... Uh, if you think of the human brain, uh, it's got the uh, power of computational power of a megawatt supercomputer, but it doesn't expend megawatts. It expends the equivalent of a dim light bulb. So it's a dramatic example of the extraordinary energy efficiency that these little uh, Maxwell demons in our brains, uh, and they really are there. They're very much like Maxwell's original demon, operating, op opening and closing little shutters to send nerve signals uh, from from one neuron to another, uh, all, all of that shows the, the ability of life to uh, uh, maximise its um, uh, efficiency and lower its its thermodynamic cost. Um, coming coming back to your original question, order uh, and, and disorder is is life ordered? Well, in the strict 
Now, the limited thermodynamic sense, it, it is ordered, but I think it fails to capture uh, what I regard as the true magic of life, which is this word organization. Uh, that it's, it's not enough to say uh, that it's ordered. After all, a crystal is ordered, uh, but in a rather boring way. Uh, and so life uh, occupies this intermediate position between uh, the boring order of a crystal and the boring uniformity of, a, of say, a gas in thermodynamic equilibrium, which is certainly um, very complex in a way, but it's, a, but it's a very uninteresting type of complexity. Life sits in the middle where uh, it is complex organization of complex order we can bandy these words around, um, but in a way that we would like to be able to define rather more precisely. And that gets, gets me to the heart of my book, because what I've tried to do in this book is to start out with Maxwell's demon and the, the demon in the machine, looking at the, um, these thermodynamic aspects and molecular efficiency and so on, uh, but point out very quickly that life goes beyond this, uh, that life um, involves uh, not just uh, information processing, but information management and control on a global scale. Uh, it, it's not just uh, a local thing. It's not just a, a molecule of one place doing one little thing and saving some energy. Uh, it's the, uh, the way that in living organisms, the information is integrated across many length scales and, and time scales uh, and fulfills this type of management role, which we use this term organization. It looks like organized information management, not just sort of piecemeal. Um, it, it's not just a, a, a hodgepodge of little bits of information processing all glued together. There is some coherent uh, processes going on. And that's where uh, the definition of information needs to be widened to include that aspect of coherence and control. Uh, and you couldn't want a better example than the development of the embryo. When you think about that, uh, of course, there's information processing going on. Genes are being read. Uh, there's networks of genes that switch each other on and off. Information flowing around those networks. Um, and this is not just uh, information processing for its own sake. It's coupled to chemical networks uh, that uh, are chemical gradients uh, in order for cells to grow in one place and not another and uh, differentiate into different forms. So what you're seeing in the development of the embryo is a sort of choreography which is being managed by networks of uh, inf information, uh, ge genetic and chemical networks coupled together. Uh, to bring about uh, this organized, coherent whole uh, on a global scale. Now, defining information that encompasses that degree of uh, 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 management or uh, uh, I really can't avoid using the term semantics uh, is very difficult. So I'm using the term semantics because if you ask a biologist what is a gene, it's, it's not just n bits of information, uh, it's a set of instructions. And what does instructions mean? Uh, 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 instructions only mean something if there is a system, uh, a molecular system, in this case it has to do with the ribosome and all the various enzymes that make that uh, work, uh, that has to interpret that information and implement the in instructions. Uh, so uh, the term meaning seems to go here. Uh, the The information in a gene has to mean something. If it's just junk, 
uh, doesn't mean anything and it is not biologically functional. So uh, pinning down that notion that here is uh, uh, so many bits of information which are not just any old bits, but are instructions or meaningful bits or, or they have semantic content. Um, trying to get a mathematical definition of that is really, really tough. It's an outstanding problem. I know people who work on it. They try to see if they can formalize that in some way. But at the end of the day, I think we're going to need uh, to, to find new laws. I think new physics is lurking in living matter, uh, which will uh, have as their basis this notion of, uh, to use a more neutral term, contextual information. Uh, me meaning, of course, you know, is a loaded term. But context, I think, is a rather neutral one, that the information in a gene uh, and elsewhere in biology has to be uh, seen in the context of the organism as a whole. And this is, goes against hundreds of years of tradition in physics, which is that we tend to look, when we talk about cause and effect, we concentrate on local interactions, what's happening at a point. And, and so, if you take the example of electric forces, uh, how do we, what's going on there? Well, you can look at a particle like an electron, does it have an electric charge or not? So it does have a charge, and that charge is, as it were, on the electron. It's locally identified. At that point, there is the charge. Uh, but if you look at a base pair in DNA and say, is that part of biological instruction, or is it just a bit of junk? Is that a mutation? You know, what is it? You can't tell. You've got to look at the whole system. And uh, defining laws of physics that uh, relate the whole to the part is a really tough one. Uh, it's, it's not unprecedented in physics, it happens in quantum mechanics, uh, but uh, it's unfamiliar to most physicists. And so part of the reason we can't write down the laws of life right now is because they will evolve in some way connecting what's going on locally with the totality of the system. And that's a tough one. So I guess one of the things you highlighted there is physics historically has been very reductive. Uh, but to understand these, uh, to understand living systems, we need to understand emergence and that the sum of the parts is, well, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Yes, I think life exemplifies this dictum that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. It's uh, it's a, a very powerful example uh, and one way of expressing it that I often do is that uh, no, no atom in my body is alive yet I am alive and now if you're a hard-nosed reductionist you'll say oh well um, that's because you're uh, bestowing upon this thing called life a special sort of status uh, but actually you are nothing but uh, a collection of, of atoms and that uh, the, the fact that some particular collection or arrangement of atoms uh, you choose to call living is entirely an informal thing, but life is not a fundamental aspect of existence. It's simply one particular state or arrangement of particles alongside all of the others, and you're vesting too much significance in it. It's very hard to convince a biologist, for example, that their subject matter is of no uh, particular value uh, compared to any other arrangement of things. So we do think life is rather special, maybe it's hubris, um, but I, I'm convinced that there is something special and significant about life, and it is more 
than the sum of its parts. So this uh, type of nothing buttery uh, doesn't really help. It certainly does, it is of no practical value mm. to say that uh, if you want to understand what is going on in living organisms, the, the, the physics and the, and the chemistry and all the interesting things they do, to say, well, it's all really just atoms uh, interacting with each other, doesn't help you at all. So the reductionist agenda, uh, you know, might please some philosophers to say that the world is nothing but a lot of particles or loops of string or whatever is your fundamental unit, but it's of, of no real value in science. And I think it's actually fundamentally wrong anyway. Mm. I think in your book, uh, there's a great example that you use, um, how to fix, how would a biologist fix a radio or something along those lines? Uh, I can't remember the name. Could, could you just yeah. talk on that? Yes, uh, so, so this is, um, when I think back through my career, you see what, is, what has happened is that physics started out, what, 300, 350 years ago, um, and has been traditionally a very reductionist uh, discipline that we tend to um, classify particle physics, that we think, well, what, what is matter, or what's it made of, smash it to bits, see what the components are, and uh, the, the pinnacle of this quest is the discovery of the Higgs boson a few years ago. And so this follows the tradition that you'll understand something by smashing it into pieces. Uh, and that's part of the story. I'm not denigrating what those people do. I think it's wonderful. Um, but it's only obviously one half of the story because even if you've got all of the fundamental particles listed in a big table, it won't explain why people fall in love or what, how they vote in elections or anything of that sort. And so that's, that's the other part. Of the story. Uh, now, physics, I think, uh, in the post-war years began to get away from that uh, extreme reductionism, and there were a lot of fields like uh, chaos theory and complexity theory and um, uh, uh, in condensed matter physics, lots of, um, of work in the opposite direction. Uh, you might think of that as uh, emergent phenomena or synthetic uh, phenomena where bit parts come together and produce uh, something new and exciting. Uh, and the whole field of uh, self-organization, self-organizing systems uh, became very big in the 70s and 80s. The physics sort of got away from it, but meanwhile, uh, biology that was on a roll after uh, Schrodinger's little book triggered the industrial uh, the uh, industrialization of molecular biology became, it's now a major industry, uh, that molecular biology became uh, very reductionistic too. And so there was a tendency to think that everything in life could be explained by looking at what was going on at the molecular level. And the, the high watermark of that was the Human Genome Project. Uh, there was a feeling, well, all we need to do is sequence the human genome and we'll solve all the world's problems, we'll have cures for all the diseases and so on, because it'll all be there on the DNA. Um, it, it was always going to be a nonsense. You just count the number of uh, base pairs in DNA and count the look at the complexity of a living organism. They clearly don't match up. So as there's much more going on than just uh, at that bottom level. Uh, but that uh, spirit of... Uh, well, uh, we've got something baffling, a living cell or something. How do we explain it? Well, let's try smashing it up and seeing, uh, seeing what's inside and we're maybe figure it out. And there is this uh, wonderful story. Uh, it's an account written by a, a Russian um, geneticist, I believe he was, who was engaged for a long while in working out a particular um, 
type of um, biochemical uh, machinery. Uh, but this is a sort of spoof on uh, how you would go about, um, and how many biologists do go about thinking about a complicated component in a in a living cell. Uh, and he uses uh, transistor radio. I don't know how many of our young listeners even know what a transistor radio is. When, when I was a schoolboy, I built one of these things, or a friend of mine built it, and you know, I, I helped. So we, we understood how you could uh, you, you buy these uh, transistors, which were, were little um, switches, basically, uh, and uh, solder them all together and uh, get this radio to work. So it's all wonderful. Um, so these things would have, I don't know, 50 components or something in total. And so the story is that uh, this uh, uh, Russian biologist wife had a transistor radio that was broken and said, uh, you know, could, could he fix it? Um, and how would a biologist go about uh, fixing it? Uh, and, and so you might imagine, well, you take the back off and you'd note that there are some uh, uh, colored uh, things inside. These would be the transistors. They used to be color-coded, you see, and, and some would be red and some would be blue and some would have stripes and so on. So the first thing you might do is, well, let's um, remove one of those and see if it makes it better or worse. Or let's swap two of them, uh, transpose them, and see if that makes a difference. Uh, you know, you go on like that. Or what about... Um, uh, you know, you fire a bullet through and uh, does that improve it or make it worse? And, uh, you know, which bits seem to be vital? And that's precisely the way that biologists go about trying to understand what's going on in living organisms. But he makes the point, which is uh, that any competent radio engineer would know immediately what to do. They'd listen to it, oh, the sound's all distorted or something, we need to replace this bit or uh, retune that bit. And that's because they the uh, radio engineer would understand the principles of the transistor radio, the pr principles of, of radio um, control. Uh, and th th we don't understand the principles of life. If you understood what makes the cell tick in terms of its overall principles and how the, not just the components, but the how the whole lot is put together in a coherent, integrated manner. If you understood those principles, um, then you could fix defects. And I have this dream. I've worked uh, quite a bit recent recent years in cancer research. Have this dream that we'll be able to uh, tackle the cancer problem uh, in that sort of way. That we'll understand uh, that there is. Uh, a, we think of cancer as um, in terms of physical hallmarks, and there's some very familiar ones like uh, uncontrolled proliferation and cell motility and metastasis and evading the immune system and so on. These are all physical traits. But they're also, I think, informational traits. And uh, that's, if you like, software glitches as well as hardware glitches. Uh, and just like in the, uh, with computers, you can correct, if you're lucky, you can correct software glitches by downloading a patch or... Uh, uh, re reinstalling um, a bit of software or ultimately reinstalling the entire operating system and then you sort of reboot and uh, fix the problem that we might be able to tackle diseases like cancer in the same way instead of just uh, you know annihilating the cells uh, find some way of um, uh, if you understand the, pr the principles of information management and how that information is being mismanaged in cancer that we might be able to reconfigure it and get back to uh, 
to the, the healthy one. That may be pie in the sky. Um, it may be easier to just uh, find a way of annihilating all those cells, but um, but it's a sort of, it's a, I think, a more satisfactory approach to, to say we, if we can only understand the, the principles of the software of life in the same way as you can understand the principles of the information processing going on in a, in a radio, uh, you're more likely to be able to fix a problem or understand what's going on than just uh, sort of looking at the, at the components and hoping you'll get some, some clue. Yeah. I wanted to come to this later on in the conversation, though perhaps now is the best time. Um, from my understanding um, of, of your book, cancer could be seen as uh, not a case of damaged cells randomly running amok, but uh, brought about by ancient, but basically something changes in the cell, which brings about um, a, a an, an ancient historical, uh, well-organized and efficient survival response. So that the cell yes. reverts to yes. a primeval state that it would have right. back in its genetic, you know, back, back not long ago. Right. Um, so um, the, this, uh, you're quite right, and you've explained uh, very well the ideas that I've uh, been developing, and uh, now it's become a big international enterprise, including people here in the Sydney who are working on this. Oh, great. Uh, and um, and it, all, it, all re it started for me with a realisation that cancer is not limited to humans. It's found pretty much across the whole multicellular realm. And so all birds, fish, insects, uh, plants even get cancer, even fungi, uh, corals, you know, you can see cancer or cancer-like phenomena in all of these things. And so anything that is that pervasive obviously has very deep evolutionary roots. And you can ask, well, when in history uh, did multicellularity arise? And the answer is, well, more than once actually, but uh, starting at about one and a half billion years ago. And so this suggested to me that cancer is um, uh, a sort of toolkit of uh, genes that cells have, which date back from this very early time. And that cancer is a, like a reversion to a more primitive state. It may be all the way back to unicellular. In some aspects, uh, cancer behaves like the unicellular world that predated the multicellular world. In some cases, it looks a little bit more organized. It looks like it's on the cusp between the unicellular and multicellular worlds. And uh, this has become uh, very much a hot topic, as I told you. So just recently, uh, the work of uh, David Good and Anna Trigos at the Peter Mac Cancer Research Center in Melbourne has shown that um, it's not just just a straight switch off the multicellular genes and switch on the unicellular genes. It's more a more nuanced picture where the gene networks that regulate the uh, unicellular activity, so it's very ancient, go back over three billion years, and the multicellular gene networks, which are more recently evolved in the last billion years or so, uh, they, they become progressively decoupled. So uh, this uh, it's not a straight reversion, it's really a sequence of um, uh, throwbacks, if you like, of going back uh, to an earlier, an earlier stage. And I think it's well recognized in the cancer research community that cancer cells are a bit like stem cells. Uh, that that well, I should explain that 
stem cells have the power to uh, create uh, any different type of cells. So uh, if you get a totipotent, as it's called, stem cell, it can turn into you know liver, lung, uh, skin, whatever. Uh, but when that differentiation is completed, uh, that's supposed to be a, a fixed endpoint. And what happens in cancer is you get to go the other way. You get a, the arrow goes backwards. You get a de-differentiation. You get a, a reversion from uh, these more specialized cells to less specialized, more stem-like cells. And that's a bit like going back into the into the past. So we've developed uh, this theory in quite some detail and very unusual in biology that uh, physicists are used to making uh, predictions. They sit down, uh, look at their equations, and they say, go measure this or look for that, and I predict you will see A and not B. That's the great power of physics. It doesn't happen very often in biology, but it does happen here. And that's because of a subject known as phylostratigraphy. Uh, so this uh, uh, blossomed during the time that I've been kicking these ideas around in the last 10 years or so. Uh, and what it means, it's a frightening sounding word, what it means is um, doing for genes what uh, ge geologists do for rock strata, uh, that you can uh, sort of, uh, just as you go down through a geological sequence and see more and more ancient layers, so you can do the same. If you look at the great tree of life, you look at uh, the genome sequences as they're available now, thousands and thousands of species and you look for common genes uh, we share I don't know 98.5 percent of our genes with chimpanzees for example so you can do these sorts of analyses and then you can um, use that to infer the dates the branch points how far back did we branch from mushrooms or something you know, pick your favorite organism and uh, phylostratigraphy can give you the answer so then you can apply this to cancer genes if you give me your favorite cancer gene, uh, these people I collaborate with can tell you, oh, that one's, uh, you know, two and a half billion years old, or that one's uh, 400 million years old, something like that. Um, and so we can be quite precise and say that as cancer progresses, it should uh, upregulate uh, the older genes and downregulate the newer genes. And sure enough, this, you know, you can test this, and it turns out that these uh, predictions are largely correct. But the one that I think is really exciting it was just recently the subject of a, well, just last week, the subject of a paper in the journal Science by a group at the Garvin Institute uh, here in Sydney. Uh, this uh, is some work that uh, we initiated a few years ago. We discovered uh, that there's a, a very a famous uh, response, an atavistic response that bacteria still use. So this uh, dates way back. Uh, and let me just take you through this. Uh, life on Earth uh, has been around for at least three and a half billion years. Uh, and for most of that time, it was unicellular. Now, when life began, it had but one imperative, which is replicate, replicate, replicate. These are just single cells that were, in a sense, immortal because they could just go on splitting and splitting and making more of themselves. Multicellularity was a very different way of doing life because in a multicellular organism, most of the cells give up on their bid for immortality. They outsource that part to the, to the germline, the germ cells, like the eggs and the sperm. Uh, so they carry uh, the immortality into the future generations. The rest of the cells uh, undergo apoptosis or uh, cell suicide when they are past 
their due date, surplus to requirements. Cancer is a breakdown of that contract between the so-called somatic cells, the ones in the body that don't have that immortality, uh, and the germline. So, they, so cancer is a bid for ancient immortality. Uh, and so, uh, so cells have, single cells have had a long time to learn how to combat insults to their integrity, to their proliferative ability, their ability to replicate. And one of the things that, uh, that cells learned a long time ago, as we know from dating their genes, uh, is that if they're in trouble, they can turn up their rate of mutation. So we, I think everybody knows cancer uh, genomes are very highly mutated. You look at the tumor, sequence the, the genes, you see they're a total uh, genomic mess. Uh, and so people tend to identify cancer with these uh, mutations. Uh, but uh, what we've discovered is that cancer can, uh, the cells can actually tune their rate of mutation. They can deliberately turn up their own uh, mutation rate, their self-inflicted damage. And they do this as a means of uh, getting out of trouble. So bacteria, when they're stressed, can undergo these mutations to find uh, other sources of food, for example. It's called stress-induced mutagenesis. And we found some years ago that the uh, oncogenes older than about, these are the cancer genes, older than about 900 million years, um, cluster, uh, there's a subcluster around the homologs, that's the equivalent of the bacterial genes that control this stress-induced mutagenesis. So a lot of what you see in cancer with these mutations, it's not that the mutations are caused by some damaging agent like radiation, and that causes the cancer. So cells are actually deliberately turning up their own mutation rate. Uh, so cancer is almost like a defense mechanism that cells use when they're in a bad place. So there's carcinogens or hypoxia, low oxygen. They think, uh, ah, well, I know what to do here. Done this for three and a half billion years. Just turn up the mutation rate and look for a way out of this trouble. And they do that with chemotherapy too. They, they've been bombarded with toxins and they think, right, we know what to do. Uh, we just mutate out of trouble. Uh, and that's part of the difficulty of tackling cancer. So could, it, could chemo actually um, exacerbate um, the cancer? Because that yes, doesn't sound yes, good so, at all. Uh, well, no, uh, and I'm an advocate of uh, getting away from the uh, standard of care, which is maximum tolerable dose, uh, where you sort of bring the patient to death's door in the hope of killing the cancer before you kill the patient. Uh, it's, it's brutal, uh, it's uh, unpleasant, and I think it's actually counterproductive, though I must caution, and I always do, that I am a theoretical physicist, I'm not a physician, uh, and I can't give medical advice, uh, but I can overall uh, say that uh, it, it makes more sense to me uh, to do the opposite, which is a minimal efficacious dose, that is, uh, if it's chemotherapy, or for that matter, any treatment, uh, that try to contain the cancer, Cancer is really, it's not a, a single thing. It's more like an ecosystem. And as we know with ecosystems, if you stress them, uh, you can often have unintended consequences. So you might think, oh, we've got all these weeds, you know, let's kill the weeds. And then you find there's a super weed that just takes over. Uh, land management, uh, they've learned, people learned a long time ago that uh, it's better to just um, uh, try to sort of contain 
what's going on. And I think the same would be true of cancer. You don't want to provoke this stress-induced mutagenesis, this SOS response, this very atavistic, I'm going to mutate out of trouble. You don't want to provoke that if you can avoid it. You want to keep this ecosystem uh, balanced and live with it. And that's possible in 95% of cancers. Some cancers, of course, uh, if they're in the brain or something like that, uh, that's a luxury you can't afford. But most cancers, uh, so you've got a lump, you know, in your stomach, say. Uh, why is that a big deal? Why is that a death sentence? And, and the truth is, it's not on its own a death sentence. What happens is the cancer spreads around the body. It's this process called metastasis. And uh, after that happens, then the prognosis is very poor. Uh, but if you can uh, contain and manage, there's no, uh, really no reason why uh, you have to annihilate every last cancer cell. And I, I work with, um, in Arizona, uh, there's uh, uh, the Arizona uh, Cancer Evolution Center, uh, or uh, we call it ACE, uh, Arizona Center for Evolution and Cancer. Uh, and uh, uh, they're involved in clinical trials where uh, where this um, principle is is being tried. So I think it's beginning to make a, a, a bit of a difference in uh, therapy, but it, it's a long way to go. And I have to say that cancer is such a politicized disease that I think a lot of people feel um, they have a, have this natural fear of cancer and if you're diagnosed with cancer there is a tendency to think oh, you know i want it out of me it's like an alien growing inside me i've got to, got to get rid of it you know do whatever you can to destroy it uh, and i think we have to just get to a different mindset where we think well actually with anybody my age is is living with a huge amount of cancer and the body has ways of managing those cancer cells. They're, they're, they're in us, uh, probably not in some of your age so much, but uh, people, um, older people have got uh, cancer cells all over them and, uh, and the body has, uh, is able to manage it. And what we notice as clinical symptoms is when those natural management uh, processes, which are things like immune surveillance and tissue regulation and so on, um, when they break, break down. So... It's a myth to suppose you get rid of every cancer cell in your body. They're, they're in there anyway. Uh, and so if we just get around to thinking of it as a chronic disease, a bit like diabetes, uh, it's something that you would manage uh, and uh, extend life expectancy uh, and, uh, and, and learn to live with it, uh, I think that would be a much better outcome clinically. Mm. Yeah, well, it's, um, it's very exciting in many ways because, you know, cancer... It, 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 it would be hard to find a, a family that hasn't been touched by, you know, it's, it's, well, by, by cancer. So. Yeah. yeah. Every family is touched by cancer. But it is, of course, a terrible thing. It's, uh, it depends how you cut the numbers, but it looks like it's uh, either the number one or certainly number two uh, killer worldwide. It's not just one of these things that is restricted to affluent countries mm -hmm. where we're living too long. Anyway, um, it's actually uh, really bad in developing countries. We just don't test it as much. Like it's harder to like in in poorer countries. Like they may not have the resources to actually identify these things. You know, like with the coronavirus today, they may not have as many cases because they're not testing. Yeah, but, but, but uh, that, and that's true. But uh, even if you take the identified cases, it's still huge mm -hmm. in those countries. They're growing all the time. 
Uh, and there, there are lots of things we can do, I have to say, it's a bit of a digression, uh, other than uh, just going easy on the treatment. Uh, there's, uh, we, we don't really spend nearly enough time with cancer prevention, because a lot of the issues here are lifestyle. I think we know we shouldn't smoke or sniff asbestos or lie in the sun uh, too much. These are obvious sort of health things, although people still do all of those things. I'm not sure what the asbestos is. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, uh, obesity is a, is a risk factor. Alcohol is a risk factor. Diet is a risk factor. So if we manage all these things, um, in terms of extending life expectancy, uh, they'd be much more efficacious than uh, hoping for the next miracle pill because you don't get a Nobel Prize for a good healthcare message uh, saying, you know, eat more of this and less of that. Uh, it may be a very worthy thing to do, but you don't go down in history as the person who discovered, you know, the cure for cancer. And so the lure of the cure, as I call it, um, really distorts the... Uh, the funding and distorts the thinking. There's a lot of very clever people scrambling to find, you know, another pill. Um, but in terms of uh, the so-called breakthrough that we keep reading about every week, there's a breakthrough in cancer. Uh, what you're really talking about is often rather modest, and uh, it might be that uh, a, you know, a particularly nasty type of cancer pancreatic cancer or something, life expectancy without treatment might be six months, but uh, company A has produced a pill that extends that to nine months, uh, and then company B produces a pill that extends it to 10 months, uh, and this is touted as uh, you know, B's breakthrough, uh, but we're measuring uh, uh, life prolongation in terms of weeks, if, if not months. Uh, and this is very different from the image we will have of a pill that will make it go away totally, or maybe go away for 40 years or something. Such a thing is not impossible, and there are some examples, some specific cancers, where this, this is in fact the case. But generally speaking, across the board, um, most of the progress, the most dramatic progress, I would say, made against cancer in the last, uh, say, 40 years, is reduction in smoking, at least among males. And you really see that in the data now, and the lung cancer data is coming down quite dramatically. So that's, that's a, lot of, a lot of progress. And some uh, uh, other stomach cancer has come down. And then the cancers you can screen for, skin cancer being the obvious uh, example, uh, we could bring that under much better control by having more regular checks, because you can see it, it's on the outside. Mm. Uh, so so the, the, there are ways that we can uh, improve the outcomes, but uh, I think we've got to get away from that idea it's going to be some miracle pill. Yeah, I, I liked your analogy of the weeds in the garden. Um, you know, if, if your garden's teeming with, with weeds, uh, like the cure for cancer could be seen as that which just gets rid of all of them, but the trick is to not have any right. weeds in the first place, right? Um, but that, that's yes. not as sexy, yes. right? It's, it's not the pill that... It's, it's not the one yes. pill that cures at all, but it's just, you know, avoid avoid these outbreaks. Yes. And from the sounds of it, these outbreaks are uh, a consequence of living. Um, DNA damage will occur regardless of what you do. Like the very nature of living is to process information and, well, there's, there's stuff yes. going on and there's degradation going on. And that may result in, you know, a genetic aberration, which results in this. So it's a question of how to, how to manage yeah. it. Okay, so that's right. So cancer is not going to go away because it's built into the fundamental logic of life. It's part of 
what multicellularity means. Uh, and, the, um, and as I've indicated, we can identify the genes that are implicated. And uh, when they're very ancient, we know they're going to be very deeply protected. And the other thing is uh, that uh, cancer never invents anything new. It just uh, repurposes existing modalities. Uh, many of these uh, modalities or properties are important in early stage embryogenesis or in wound healing uh, because in both cases you want to have rapid uh, cell uh, proliferation, uh, you want to have uh, cell motility, cells moving around uh, and uh, often growing in low oxygen environments and all of these things are hallmarks of, of cancer. So uh, the cancer these oncogenes that I've been talking about, um, a lot of those are developmental genes that are supposed to be switched off in the adult form when they get reactivated uh, in the tumor. So, so a science writer in the United States, George Johnson, has described uh, tumors as the embryo's evil twin. So it's like an embryo gone wrong. A lot of the genes which are regulating it are embryonic genes and there's others associated with wound healing it's another sort of reconfiguration uh, rapid reconfiguration of things mm. uh, so cancer is often talk, uh, described as the wound that never heals it just goes on you know doing, doing more uh, trying more and more repair more and more patch up and uh, doesn't ever come to an end mm. yeah well it's uh, it's fascinating um I just I want to bring uh, the conversation back to um, information in life. Um, there's two things that I really want to hit on. Uh, one is um, top-down causality, uh, and the other is uh, well, well, yeah. Let, let's let's go for, uh, let's go with top-down uh, causality uh, to begin with because that sounds you know the reductionist would just bulk at that and say well that's just impossible. Um, right. But we have observed that this could this could indeed be the case and well it could be possible that 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 uh, information architecture and flows can actually result in um downstream well down the chain causal uh patterns or influences yes so uh, you're right and we touched on this earlier that the reductionist position is that we will answer everything by looking at the molecules down at that sort of level. And uh, I cited the Human Genome Project as uh, this sort of false hope that somehow we would understand uh, everything about human beings by sequencing their genomes. Uh, we have to look at the system as a whole. Um, an organism is, uh, you know, all organism, organic, organization, all these terms really go together. Uh, and. Uh, so then the question is, if we're trying to describe, you know, what happens, um, uh, how do we uh, unpick that causal chain? Now, uh, in physics, you might say, well, this atom collides with that atom and it moves off over there. Uh, and it's very clear these are sort of local causes down at the atomic level and all that's very well described. Uh, and then if you go to some higher level, like a gas, I was talking about gases uh, in boxes, uh, then you forget about the individual molecules, unless you're Maxwell's demon, uh, and you just look at the uh, overall average out uh, uh, state of affairs and so on. Um, and these are completely different conceptual levels. A gas uh, and an atom are separate things, and there are laws that describe 
both, and those are supposed to be consistent with each other, um, but we don't get those levels tangled together very often. But in biology, the levels do tangle together. That what goes on, a particular gene switching on may have uh, huge consequences for the organism as a whole. And what the organism does, its, its behavior, its microenvironment, uh, could affect what is going on at the genetic level. So these different levels get mixed up. So when we talk about cause and effect, it becomes a real tangle because of these feedback loops between the higher levels and the lower levels. And I want to give you a couple of examples to make this clear, because otherwise it's just words, um, that uh, I think everybody would recognize that if um, a particular gene gets switched on, it uh, may have a consequence. If it's a bacterium, for example, and it upregulates a particular gene, that might enable it to move in a certain direction or metabolize a, a bit of food or something like that. And so uh, uh, clearly, the instructions in the genes can affect the behavior of the organism as a whole. But this works uh, two ways. Uh, and there's some dramatic examples uh, that physical forces acting on cells uh, globally, uh, on the cell overall, uh, can affect gene expression. And there's a wonderful example from my university at Arizona State University and our Institute of Biodesign. Uh, a scientist named Cheryl Nickerson uh, sends uh, bacteria to the space station to see how they get on in orbit. And uh, it turns out that they, the genes they express uh, in microgravity can be very different from what they express on the ground. And you might think, well, what's the point of that? Uh, well, everybody knows we have this microbiome inside us uh, that uh, in addition to the cells of our own bodies, but a trillion bacteria and other microbes called archaea uh, in, in our gut and in every organ, it turns out, uh, and they're necessary for human well-being. Uh, if they don't like floating in space, if they're going to start behaving differently, then it could make astronauts sick. And so that's the, the motivation that she's working with NASA. Um, another wonderful example, which I talk about in the book, is the work of Michael Levin at Tufts University. And he likes to chop up worms. Uh, there are certain worms that if you chop them in half, the head grows a tail or the tail grows a head and you have two worms. So children love this. Uh, you can chop them into many different bits, actually, and they remember which bit was facing forward and which bit was facing backwards. Um, and he's discovered there's an electrical story uh, that gives them that uh, uh, orientation information. And by mucking around with the elect electrical story, he can induce them to grow two heads or two tails. And then when what he finds is that the, if you chop up a two-headed worm, it makes two two-headed worms, and the same with two tail worms. You get two two-tailed worms. So this so-called epigenetic information, this uh, uh, morphological pattern uh, that looks like different species, uh, they have identical DNA, uh, but this information is being propagated from one generation to the next. Uh, and so uh, he found that if you send the middles of chopped up worms to the space station, about 15% of them came back with two heads. So again, the gene expression uh, seems to uh, depend on the physical environment. You see a much simpler example, I mean these dramatic and entertaining examples, much simpler example is if you grow cells in a Petri dish, um, and that uh, they, they will, uh, if you do it carefully, they will grow until they reach the edge of the dish and then they stop. It's often called contact inhibition. Uh, when the cells get too crowded together, they stop growing. 
they think, go, there's not enough space, we stop. Cancer cells switch that off, by the way, which is part of their uh, ability to grow in this uncontrolled uh, manner. So what you're saying is that the physical forces uh, acting on the cells affect their gene expression. The same is true of, of shear stresses. People study, so part of my colleagues' work at Arizona State University is to look at if uh, a cell is subjected to shear stress, uh, as it might, for example, if it's a cancer cell in the bloodstream, uh, and differential forces acting on it, it greatly changes its physical properties, can become stiffer or can become looser, can become softer. Uh, which helps cancer squeeze through little gaps. Um, so we see time and again uh, that uh, what is happening to the cell as a whole can af affect the uh, switching on of genes. So if we're talking about cause and effect here, we have to have an arrow going up from the, uh, from the molecules, from the genes, and coming down from the organism and its microenvironment, uh, not just the cell itself, but what's going on around the cell. All of these things can affect what is happening. And so top-down causation really refers to the fact that the full picture has to take into account the arrows going both ways. And if we ever want to come up with, as it were, laws of life uh, to find some new uh, uh, way of describing the uh, software management that is part of the story I'm just saying, it's going to have to include this two-way information flow. Mm. Oh, it's, it's fascinating. I remember when I was reading about the, the worms and the two heads growing, it was just mind-blowing. <laughs> um, this, this talk of... Well, as Bob says, that if you came from Mars and you looked at this, you'd be sure that these were two different species and would be staggered to find that they actually have identical DNA. Yeah. Um, one of these, these laws... Uh, of information, but perhaps that it wouldn't be a law, but um, something that is definitely, as we have observed, uh, to be a, a driver of life is uh, uncertainty reduction, and that the creation of order, um, or just the entire act of life itself, is uh, at least in part taking in uh, energy, processing information about the environment in order to, you know, uh, survive, procreate. And, and all of that. Um, what, what are your thoughts on, uh, well, un uncertainty and um, the role that really plays? Um, I, I had a, um, I, I did an interview um, a few weeks ago with a guy called Maxwell Ramstead, who um, he's, he's working on um, the free energy principle. Are you at all familiar with? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just thought it was absolutely fascinating that this, that the, the urge or the, 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 the that life exhibits this um, this drive to minimize uh, surprise, um, and it's it seems to make a lot of sense, at least intuitively, um, because you know if, if that which is surprising is not always good, it could result in uh, death or or harm. But also, just in my own life, and I think we all experience this, that uncertainty is the worst thing to experience. You know, if you go to the doctor and you're you're getting a, a test for cancer, let's say, the three days of waiting is a lot worse than getting the news, yes. uh, good, good or bad. Yes. Um, yes. Well, you're absolutely right. And again, uh, it makes sense to try to sort of boil this down to the simplest cases. If you look at a bacterium, uh, it's, it's living in a, an uncertain and potentially dangerous world, and it's trying to optimize its 
chances of survival. And uh, this can be analyzed uh, in sort of robotic language, and people do this, and very clever people look at the information that uh, bacteria might garner from its environment, and this might be chemical gradients or light or something, you know, that sort, and that information then will, of course, be processed, and, and ha there has to be some sort of algorithm or some way of optimizing that, so it will make, on average, uh, the right decision. It might be turn left or turn right, or you know, swim this way or go backwards, whatever it is. Um, so it's a very simple little robotic type device, uh, but it's it's had billions of years of evolution uh, to refine uh, the efficiency of this information garnering, processing, and uh, then implementation of a response. And people measure these things and they try to um, figure out exactly what is going on. Uh, where, where it becomes sort of murky but also quite interesting uh, is, um, is, is this just uh, taking place uh, in... What, what is often called the epigenetic realm. In other words, is this just um, the information being processed, the forces acting and so on locally, or is there actually a genetic component? Is it uh, conceivable uh, that the, um, that uh, not only just for behavior, but that cells can uh, re-edit their own genomes to deploy tricks that have been learned throughout history, three and a half billion years of history. Can they um, uh, ch change not only their um, epigenetic response, but their genetic response as well? I mean, that's a, an open question, but I, I'm sort of intrigued to think that uh, their genes have evolved to, uh, 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 to embed contingency because the one thing, you know, with the, if you live in an unexpected world, uh, where there can be some nasty surprises, uh, it pays to have a few tricks up your sleeve that you may never ever need. Uh, but if uh, in event of some emergency, you know what to do. Uh, and, and life has had this very long time to plan for contingencies. And these contingencies may uh, represent parts of the genome uh, that, uh, uh, that are you know, mostly not deployed, uh, but they can be if circumstances uh, allow. And so people will analyze all this type of stuff mathematically uh, to see how well that information uh, processing, garnering processing and response uh, is being implemented. Uh, and this is a very hot topic. So it's right at the, at the forefront of trying to understand the crossover between, if you like, life, computing, robotics, chemistry and information it's it's very exciting and i think if i was a young person getting into science today i would want to be in that sort of crossover area it doesn't we don't have a name for this field we um, uh, I'd, I'd love to invent a name that uh, re represents where all those disciplines are coming together because it, it really is a mixture of information theory computing ro robotics nanotechnology physics and chemistry and there's some quantum stuff thrown into the mix as well um, we, we need a some sort of sexy name and uh, and a whole industry uh, around that but that's that's where the action's going to be in the next 20 or 30 years yeah it's um i think we're seeing that this as a general trend in in science that there's a lot of integration going on uh, integration across different disciplines. I mean, you know, that last century was 
could perhaps be characterized as, uh, at least from a scientific perspective, as the chopping up of, of uh, the world into disciplines and then those disciplines investigating um, specific phenomena through their own lens. But uh, as we're beginning to, uh, what we're, as we are realizing on an ongoing basis that the world is completely interconnected and that um, there are commonalities in some disciplines or that there are commonalities across all disciplines. Um, information could be, you know, uh, one of the one of the best examples that just information is, is pervasive. And I, I think it's just very exciting to be a, a scientist today because um, you don't have to stay in your box. And if you actually wish to do some groundbreaking work, you want to get up, you want to make your box as large as possible uh, in a way and bring in tools that are being used in, in you know, what some would conceive as uh, far removed disciplines. We do need enlightened university administrations, though, and uh, Arizona State University, where I work when it's uh, not locked down, uh, is um, a classic example of a university that prides itself in dissolving the traditional subject boundaries, and uh, it um, has this word transdisciplinarity uh, at its core and really does encourage. I think many universities pay lip service to, oh, well, we must allow people to sort of uh, work across subject boundaries. They don't actually do much of, of it. Uh, and uh, a career path for a young person is, is a real problem because what you tend to, to do when you start out is you're working in some little narrow field and you want to build up a track record. You want to become known to the handful of people who work in that area uh, so that you can get yourself a better job uh, or any sort of job. Uh, in fact, it's always a struggle. Um, and, and to say, well, you know, I started out looking at um, uh, molecular machines, but now I'm doing, uh, you know, information theory, and the next week I might try a bit of robotics or something. Um, I know one or two people at Arizona State University who have done this, uh, who actually straddle those areas on a day-to-day -day basis. But mostly, uh, when you're starting out, the whole career structure is, uh, is against you. There are some enlightened companies or philanthropic organizations that, will, that can see the more... Uh, uh, open view, uh, open approach is worthwhile. Uh, but this is soft money. This is not uh, a career path in a university environment. So I think we've got a long way to go uh, before we get away from that uh, old-fashioned traditional way of thinking. Mm. Do, do you have any uh, advice for scientists out there, you know, looking to answer big questions? Yes, and I, and I uh, use this advice all the time because I have people working with me at ASU uh, who are faced with exactly this. Uh, and I say, well, you're the young people, you're the future. Uh, and so uh, what you do is really, really important. Uh, and my advice, um, because we're sort of stuck in, in ASU uh, is very enlightened, but most universities aren't, and people will you know, want to go on and get jobs uh, in various uh, research labs and universities elsewhere. Uh, what I say uh, is uh, have some sort of core discipline that you contribute to and be absolutely strong and become a world leader and be completely certain, even if it's rather narrow, uh, pick one particular thing where people could say, well, you can't be faulted on that. And maybe that's 50% of your time. And the other 50%, you can explore all this stuff. And that's what I did. I, I built up um, a reputation in an area called quantum gravity or really the theory of quantum fields in curved space-time and contributed lots of papers, uh, you know, uh, 
precise results, uh, built up a track record in that area, and that stood me in good stead. But all along, I was thinking, you know, what is life, and uh, is time travel possible, you know, and all these sort of wacky things, which I can now, I've reached the age where I can indulge all of this stuff. But for a young person, you know, it's important that they don't just do all these sort of uh, fun but fringe things, they've also got to have uh, an absolute core of something that they they can be respected for. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure that some of our listeners out there will uh, will really appreciate the uh, the, the information. Um, I just feel silly saying the word information, <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> given the context of the, of, of the conversation. Uh, so I guess to wrap up, um, how would you paint a picture? I mean, this is, it's not really a good question, but if you, if you were to just speak about the role information is going to play in our understanding of the world and uh, how we relate to the world and one another, and um, I guess it's, it's vital importance because it's something that we've only had as a category, let's say, for, what, less than a century? So this... Yes, so I, uh, there, there are two ways I can answer this because I think there are two huge bits of unfinished business for any young scientists who are thinking how they could contribute. Um, one, one of these we've been touching on throughout our discussion, which is that um, information in the Shannon sense are just mere bits, which uh, helps explain how Maxwell Demon works, um, is uh, completely inadequate to describe the full range of phenomena going on in life, that we need something like contextual information or the information with top-down management, all those sorts of things. And uh, there's been a few skirmishes with trying to get to grips with that, but really that's uh, an area which is wide open uh, for people to be able to contribute. That's one. And the other is that uh, I really do think that information is the unifying concept that can bring physics and biology together. And, and I'm not alone in that. And um, one of the important things that needs to be done is uh, even within physics, uh, people, there are some people who think that information is really the uh, primitive concept. We, we, in, in daily life, we tend to think, well, matter is the stuff of the world and information is a sort of higher order property. Uh, that we uh, might be instantiated in material objects, but it, it itself is a sort of abstract thing. Uh, but there's uh, certainly some physicists who think exactly the other way around. They think that ultimately the entire universe is just built out of information. It'll, it'll be quantum information. It's often called qubits rather than bits, but that's a technicality. That uh, doing science means at the mo most basic level, if you're doing something at uh, an atom or an electron or something, you, you ask it a yes-no question and you get an answer from, you interrogate it. You interrogate nature. That's how you do science. You interrogate nature, you get answers. Uh, and in the most basic level, the yes-no answers to questions. It's a spin pointing up, it's pointing down, something like that. Um, so some people want to build physics out of information, so the uh, not out of matter, not out of uh, particles or strings or anything else, but information as the core primitive concept, and then an atom might, or so 
a particle like an electron might be a sim simply a pattern of information or an expression of information in some ways. So information would be absolutely central to physics as well as the unifying glue uh, in physics and biology. And both of those fields are ripe for further development. So that's what, what I would recommend young people to look at if they really have that sort of passionate interest in getting down to the most basic aspect of what is going on in the world. Mm. And uh, as, a, as a last question, uh, what are you really excited about at the moment? Because I think I th just from the conversation we've had, we can kind of glean what that may be. But uh, is there anything in particular, um, any recent development that you, uh, that, you th that, you th that you find to be very exciting? Well, there are de developments uh, by uh, in experimental science and observational science that, of course, I get very excited by. And there's always, uh, at any given time, uh, particle physicists think they're gl glimpsing evidence from another particle. And now, uh, the most recent, just a week or two ago, is, is there some uh, additional type of neutrino that is uh, we're glimpsing? And, and that's always very exciting and I follow that. Uh, the other big thing on the experimental front has been the uh, final discovery of gravitational waves and now the use of gravitational telescopes as they are effectively uh, to look at black hole mergers and things like that. So all of that stuff excites me a lot. But in my own research, which is always much more theoretical, um, I uh, have been uh, in all these areas like cancer research and nature of life and so on. Um, but I always regard that as a hobby. And the real job is the what I touched on, the theory of quantum fields in curved space. Uh, and just uh, right now, I'm working on a problem with a couple of young people at ASU, uh, which combines these two aspects of my life I, in a flight of fancy, but in a research grant application in which I wanted to apply uh, Maxwell's demon uh, to a particular cosmological model. It's it's often known as the uh, sitter space. Um, it's it's a universe that expands exponentially fast, and it's the way we think that the universe behaved in the first split second, and it has very particular quantum properties. Uh, and in, in, in particular, it has a temperature associated with it, and that temperature uh, is manifested in the. Uh, the uh, ripples in the cosmic background heat radiation. When you, you look at the sky, do a heat map of the sky uh, with a satellite, you find uh, little splodges, hot spots and cold spots. Um, and we think that that is uh, a manifestation uh, writ large in the sky and frozen for all time uh, of the thermal properties of this uh, uh, so-called inflationary phase, this deciduous phase in the early universe. Um, but when you actually look at the theory of this, as I did right back in the 1970s, there's some oddities about it. It's similar to a black hole. Um, there's an event horizon, but it's out there instead of the inside. Um, uh, just as uh, Stephen Hawking showed a black hole has a temperature, so this temperature of uh, this Decida space seems to play a similar role. It seems to have an entropy as well. All of these things uh, seem to work well, but there's some peculiarities about it as well. So I'm uh, trying to apply the concept of Maxwell's demon. Can, just like the demon can e extract, can use information as a fuel, can you power a little machine from the heat of, uh, of the universe, uh, on that type of universe, um, and, and would the laws of thermodynamics go through?
Well, thank you again to Paul for taking the time to have a chat. I really enjoyed that discussion and I hope that you did too. If you'd like to follow up on some of the things discussed, uh, please just head to the show notes at samhbarton.com slash podcast, and you'll be able to find links to many of the things discussed, as well as links to Paul's website there. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider sharing it with fellow explorers like yourself or on social media. And if you'd like to support the show, please consider leaving it a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to keep up to date with new episodes and everything else that I've got going on, uh, sign up to my newsletter on my website or follow me on social media at Sam H. Barton or at Talk of Today. And until next time, thank you for listening.